0: support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington.
1: This is my passion. I've been very fortunate to have so much support from people, um, but also having some real diamond students and people that I've met along the way that have completely changed their lives and their ways of thinking for the better, and they're much happier, right? Whether they are doing genocide studies or whatever, it doesn't matter, but they're happier and they've kind of come out of something, like a dark cloud, and I think that's, I think we're all kind of striving for that.
0: Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scherr. Dr. Manaz Afridi is a Muslim scholar of the Holocaust. She is director of the Holocaust Genocide and Interfaith Education Center at Manhattan College, a Catholic college in New York City. The center's mission is to promote interfaith dialogue among Muslims, Jews, and Christians. Born in Karachi, Pakistan, and raised in Europe, the Middle East, and Scarsdale, New York, Dr. Afridi brings a unique perspective to her interfaith work. Why is studying the Holocaust important for you as a Muslim, but also as a, as a woman?
1: Well, I mean, I think my journey um, through the Holocaust has been a very powerful one, and I think one that is needed Um, in terms of being a Muslim, first of all, I think that me studying the Holocaust has made me realize so many different things about Jewish history, Judaism, the state of Israel, but also really made me realize the map of the world and the immigrant history of of Jews, the diaspora before and post-Holocaust. And My interest really, my keen interest was to study the Holocaust and also bring it to the Muslim world. And I think that's a very important aspect of who I am. I want to, I'm an educator, primarily, but I'm also someone who wants the public to know that there are other uh, people's sufferings that are as important as our own. And since I am not Jewish, I think it's actually crucial that I should talk about the Holocaust. And as a woman, As a matter of fact, recently I've been doing a lot of research on women and genocide. I think what is an address, um, but it has recently come out, even in Holocaust art exhibits and books, is how women suffered during the Holocaust. Um, And also I look at Bosnian women who were raped. I looked at their kids. I'm a mother. I'm a woman. And unfortunately... Even today in terms of ISIS, women are used as a ra- uh, as a weapon in terms of rape um, and also um, being the vessel through which everything can be harmed and I think that's crucial for me too.
0: I think I, I heard you say that that it, it's important for the world and for women to um, re reassert their role and to and to push back on the patriarchy the Mm -hmm. patriarchal system which runs through every culture too often through every culture um does that does that message how does that message resonate in in the like when you go to an orthodox jewish community and how does it resonate when you go to a to an orthodox if we would use that phrase an orthodox muslim community
1: I, you know, I think there are similarities and parallels there. For example, I was recently in uh, Venice, Italy, and we went to visit the synagogues. Um, there are five in the Jewish ghetto. And three of them are functioning and two are not. And my students were stunned that there's a women's gallery and there's a separation. And it was very easy for me to explain to them why there was a separation because even now, although they are progressive mosques and places of worship, Uh, women are separated, perhaps not in a women's gallery, but in a different location. Um, But I also feel that that separation is, or that similarity between Orthodox Jews or or Sunni Muslims, um, primarily who do separate, and also Shia Muslims, is not really that important. I think what's important is how women become the vehicle of patriarchal religious warfare, and I think that's where I have a problem. We don't we don't really address where where is the woman's role, and women also um, get scarred during these instances. Because if you look at different kinds of genocide, like for example, if you look at Rwanda, um, you look at women that were pregnant that were slashed by machetes. Um, so they not only lost their own lives, but they lost a future life. So these are these are things that we don't really want to think about. We don't want to talk about. We don't want to talk about. Um, For example, what happened to women during the Holocaust who survived, even women who survived and were sheltered by people were also abused, and their stories are just starting to come out. And I think that the body, the woman's body, is always going to be an issue for people. And I think it's important for women of all cultures and all religions to talk about how they become the weapon in in terms of any genocide.
0: You talked to... Albert? Albert Rosa. Yeah, Albert Rosa, who survived because he had to do the work mm-hmm. of disposing of bodies, of mm-hmm. dealing with that. How did that change you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I interviewed um, five survivors formally, um, three of which are going to be in my book. Um, my book is entitled Shoah Through Muslim Eyes. But um, I think talking to male survivors and female survivors were very different experiences um, for female um, the two, two women that I interviewed um, had a lot of issues of shame, had a lot of issues of what happened to their bodies, who witnessed their bodies, other men witnessing their bodies, um, their own families seeing them naked. Um, these are very, very deep and wounding experiences for women. And then men, like, for example, Albert Rosa, who basically built Birkenau Auschwitz and um, stole from the dead bodies of of the Jews and also <laughs> later on took revenge on a couple of Nazis was he was an amazing brave man but he was a man who was very angry because he was Greek and he couldn't believe that his friends from childhood would betray him and I think that was very wounding for him his brotherhood was broken up and his childhood was broken up and he was basically a fighter he came out to be a complete fighter. So did these women, but their experiences were very different. And I think we don't really understand women's bodies, and we, we just think of bodies as completely neutral. We don't really look at them. Even though we like to objectify bodies, especially in you know, American and European culture, we still don't understand the sensitivity around sensuality and sexuality.
0: So when you share that story, in, in a, first in a, in a Muslim community... Your goal is to create empathy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What, what, uh, what does happen? What, what kind of uh, conversations emerge?
1: Well, I mean, the stories I share about the Holocaust in Muslim communities are really, for me, primarily, I, want, what I what I think is really important is that they have to, that Muslims acknowledge the Holocaust, that they acknowledge that it happened, it happened in the way it happened, And that it was not uh, a cover for war, that it was not just some arbitrary number. And I think that's my first hurdle, Steve.
0: For men or women. For
1: men or women. And I think the second is to, when you start to get people to say, oh my God, I can't believe this happened and these were innocent people and, you know, those stereotypes and myths start to fall away and then you can start talking about what it means to be human and genocide because it's not as if Muslims have not experienced genocide, as a matter of fact, I think right now in, in Syria, Muslims are experiencing genocide well, under seeing, ISIS. Yeah,
0: we're seeing that, right? Yeah,
1: we're seeing that. We're witnessing that right now. And it's, it's, it's horrible to think of what the women are going through um, under ISIS regime.
0: When you talk to Jewish community groups and Christian community groups, does that humanizing also transfer? Like, are you able to make the case and then say, and let's look at Syria, let's look at Armenia let's look at rwanda
1: i think it does <laughs> and then on this on this level what i what i my challenge is is to break the other stereotype that you know we muslims are all are terrorists we don't do anything we don't speak up we don't you know we're we're coming from this place called islam and why don't we admit it's really an oppressive regime so on on, on this level uh, for a different community i'm breaking, i'm trying to break those stereotypes and once i start to explain um mm-hmm perhaps Islamic principles and ethics and who I am and what I can do and what I can't do back in my country where I was born in Pakistan, then you see a calmer face. Then you see a sort of humanization of what goes on.
0: Yeah, you talk about confronting the myth of, uh, of Arab-Muslim collaboration with the Nazis by pointing out those people from Morocco to Iran who saved Jews' lives in I- their own countries. Absolutely. The the King of Morocco? Absolutely. What was his story?
1: Um, King of Morocco, Muhammad V, was somebody who wanted to protect his people. And what he did was he told the Nazi Party, the National Socialist Party, that you cannot take anyone from my country, especially Jews. Because under the Islamic principles, we are to protect Jews and Christians. And he did not... Um, allow any Jews to leave Morocco at that point. They were not persecuted. Some were persecuted later on, um, but not under his own eyes. He also hid, it's known that he hid people in his palace and risked his own life. Mm -hmm. And we had people in Iran who did that. You had people in Albania who did that. Uh, You have a, a Turkish diplomat who did that. So these stories are really important, and I tell these stories in my book, but I also share those with Muslim communities. Um, and Muslims have absolutely no idea that these stories exist.
0: Which is a p- parallel to the fact that you said that, uh, was it in Dubai where you were teaching, but but in growing up you looked at textbooks and there was either no mention of
1: the Holocaust
0: or a denial of uh, there along was the lines a, you There was mentioned. a
1: blatant physical censorship with black markers in our books.
0: <laughs> you mean it was actually... It, actually, the, I witnessed it. Was it was there and, and where was no, that?
1: No, we would sit with our books, the supervisors would come, This was in
0: in Pakistan? Dubai. In Dubai.
1: And they would come with black markers, and they would literally cross the word Israel and Jew in our textbooks. That's how I witnessed it. So, you know, witnessing those things coming from Europe was completely shocking to me. And having no Jews in the area was completely shocking because I was coming from a European experience where it was Jews and Muslims and Hindus basically together. And all of a sudden, there there were no Jews. So, you know, these, these kind of acts, I think, you know, made me question um, how we frame each other, uh, what we're looking at, what we like to deny, you know, why we can't understand each other. And so I wanted to really uh, study Judaism and study the, and then I, you know, of course, studied the Holocaust. But I wanted to understand pre Holocaust, I wanted to understand pre 1948. So I worked with a great um, scholar and teacher. Uh, Dr. Sandra Gilman, who's in Emory University, and I did work with him on 19th century Germany. And we talked about racialization and, you know, pre-Holocaust, stuff that most people don't really know.
0: No, I, there's a museum in Germany. Is it the, the city of Germany, It's the city of uh, Berlin Museum, or is it a Jewish museum? not the Jewish Museum, that shows you the, basically the rise and fall of, of Judaism across uh, six, seven centuries in right. Germany. Right. They, would be, uh, they would be welcomed, oppressed, welcomed, oppressed, right. welcomed, oppressed. Right. And, and um, did it ever make you question your faith, the, the, the way the people were learning about or not learning about the Holocaust, the way uh, Israel was uh, portrayed? Did it make you question your, your faith?
1: No, <laughs> no, because for me, religiously, I'm a Muslim because I submit to God only, um, and I don't submit to societies, I don't submit, submit to nations or cultures, and especially human beings, so for me, it was never a question of faith, it was definitely a question of culture, education, uh, where we locate ourselves, how we interpret perhaps that faith, Um, But really, you know, faith for a Muslim relies between yourself and God. And as long as you are ethical in your principles, you know, God is really the only one that you have to answer to. So I can't blame God for Holocaust denial. I mean, I can't blame God for ignorance. Um, As a matter of fact, I don't blame God for any of that, right? I mean, this is a big, also post-Holocaust question. Where was God, right, for a lot of Jews? So. You know, these are very interesting questions, but no, I did not lose faith. Hmm. Not at all.
0: Is that a hard sell when you go to Muslim communities and say, look, here's how I am interpreting uh, the. You're looking at what happened and you're saying this should have happened politically, and I'm saying, but religion is not a part of that? Does that is that the way that, that I should think about it? How do you, how do you make that, that argument to people who say Israel shouldn't exist? Uh, we don't teach the Holocaust we don't teach the Holocaust because it didn't happen.
1: That's well, what. I mean, you know, Israel exists. That's not a theological point. You know, <laughs> I mean, we can feel it. It's empirical, and Muslims are taught to be very scientific and empirical, right? I mean, historically, we were empiricists, right? We we're scientists. We did math- mathematics. So, and I want to go back to your question about faith and religion. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's it's hard to talk to Muslims about Israel or the Holocaust because of faith. I think it's politics. And religion is something we construct. It's something we construct as human beings. I am positive, and I'm going to say this 100% positive, that Abraham did not come up with Judaism. And that certainly Jesus did not come up with Christianity. And certainly Muhammad did not come up with Islam. And for it to be certain, Buddhism—I mean, Buddha—who he would have like, you know, fall over if he knew that a religion was named after him. So we want—we want to look around world religions and think, okay, who—who I- who is constructing these things? We are creating these boundaries in the ways that we think of religion, right? But religion is actually far more superior in a sense, in terms of belief, faith, and commitment. Um, and I think. We, we like categories. We like to fit into categories. We like to be ritualistic. But we've forgotten what it means to really have faith.
0: Hmm. Um, one of the things that you talk about in, in the talks and in your writing is that, as you mentioned, that one of the uh, reasons for denying or playing down <coughs> the Holocaust is because... Uh, Either it was, let's see, one example that people give is that was, that, that's the excuse for Israel? Mm-hmm. Is that the right way to put it?
1: Yeah. The people who are making this argument are primarily Palestinians and Arabs. They're saying that we are not um, the ones that committed the crime. It was the Europeans, so which is the holocaust. So why are we paying for this price? But let me, let me go back a little bit. I think what's really, really, really interesting, and we don't do it enough um, in any community— and even uh, and this is what I write in my book for the Jewish community to work on, is uh, we have to look at colonial history pre 1948. And when you talk when people say about uh, talk about Israel, I mean, really, the Belfar Declaration was in 1919. That was a big blow to both Jews and Muslims because the British were playing both sides. The other problem and if you study colonization, you'll understand is that every single Muslim, Arab, African, Asian country has been colonized by our foreign power. And all of these powers um, had basically left a lot of these places and had aligned in the minds of Muslims with Jews to create a geopolitical place in the middle of the Middle East. So this was seen as a colonial move. And this is why Jews are seen aligned with, with a colony, with the colonial mind, with the Western mind. Nobody talks about Sephardic Jews. Nobody talks about Arab Jews. Nobody talks about people who came from Eastern Europe, but they talk about strictly the, the stereotype of the Ashkenazi Jew, the German Jew, the, the aggressive Jew. So these things got transposed, and we don't really educate even Jews in terms of the colonial history of the Muslim world not just the Jewish world so
0: if we if we did that education what would be what, what would be different what would be a different in, what would you hope to be different in perception
1: well I, th- I think that just like you know I've educated myself on Jewish history in nineteenth century Germany pre Holocaust or the Jewish tradition or looking at how uh, Jews had already started moving in, in numerous numbers you know World War one up. Um, that it it sort of makes me think, okay, where where was Palestine at that point? What was going on? There were also a lot of Arabs that sold land to Jews. You know, it wasn't just completely taken. It was taken to a certain point and it kept growing and growing. It changes my perspective because I have to rethink a lot of things and it doesn't become this game. I was here first, Hmm. you know? Um, How are we going to play that game? Um, Do I say to... Uh, does Indian Pakistan say today that I want to go back to India and I want to go back to Pakistan? No, it's over, it's happened, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> no, it's not over and it hasn't happened. That's what people say in response.
1: Right, because right. the Palestinians don't have a statehood. Right. I think that's that's what I'm saying. Mm. But I'm also saying that we have to accept each other's um, nations, right? Whether it's Israel or whether it's Palestine. Whereas you know a lot of other countries that have been marked. By colonization, which is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Egypt, Syria. I mean you keep, you can keep going around the whole roadmap. Yep. But here you have not settled a group of people. And that's the problem.
0: You know, um, the other thing you talk about, and you touched on it here, is this um, one upsmanship in, in Holocaust and one upsmanship <laughs> in genocide. Yeah. And and what what do you say so I I as a Jew had a conversation was having a conversation with with an African American, and I, I was talking about well do I understand do I understand some of what you're saying well I, I think I do as having a history of Jewish of the Jews in the world, and he said and he said, well yeah but well, that was like six years I'm talking about 350 years, and of of an ongoing genocide and against blacks in in America and Africa. Um, but that kind of one-upsmanship doesn't—we come at loggerheads when we have that.
1: I, mean, I, I, I probably agree with your, your friend, um, your African-American friend, because I think that even as a Muslim, we still look at the African Muslims as the lower totem pole. You know, we have our own racial hierarchy, even though we like to say we're the Ummah, we're egalitarian, between you know, the Arabs first, the Asians second, and then it's the Arab, and, I mean the African. And so we have a hierarchy in the world— Right in the world we have hierarchy, and wh- wherever you're located geographically, we create another hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, look at former Yugoslavia. Um, I have no idea how I can tell apart a Bosnian or Croat or a Serb, but people did that. Right? Or you look at, you know, Holocaust survivors that I've interviewed. Um, one woman who is blue-eyed, blonde-haired was stopped by Dr. Mengele and said, "Are you sure you're Jewish?" And she was 16, and she said, of course, my grandparents aren't Jewish. And she was sent to Auschwitz with her family. She survived, though. So I mean, think about it, right? So there's this racialization that we do all the time. We want to we have someone on the bottom of the totem pool. And blacks in the world have always been on the bottom. And we have right now in this country a movement about that, which I think is very crucial to all of us. Um, it's a movement that needs to happen. It's a movement that is long overdue in terms of where we racialize whom and how we do it.
0: Do you think Black Lives Matter speaks to these the issues that you're talking about in the in the Muslim world and in the, and in the Jewish world as well?
1: I think so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are also Black Jews, you know. Um, so it's not it's not as uh, as if black is just black. There's so many variations of that. In every culture, and I think this movement could sort of talk about this idea of victimization, right? Who In are what the way? Well, I mean, we're looking at, at, the ra- at race being just black, but there could be a Sudanese, Muslim, black man who says, well, I'm not African-American, but I'm black. So there could be a certain kind of understanding that all of these races have kind of pitted one race against another. It's not a unique case. Once you start saying something is unique and something is rare, it's problematic.
0: Well, that, I guess that's so there's the, there's the way through. Yes, and yes, that happened and this happened. Yep. There was an Indian woman, a, a woman in India from, uh, from Africa, who was chased down and, and beaten a couple days ago because another woman from Africa had hit an Indian woman in a car accident. So just agitation and anger and, 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 and racism, racialization. Mm-hmm. But The interesting thing was in an interview I, I heard on the BBC, they were talking to a man who was talking about this, who was, a, who was an activist in the NGO in, in India, talking about um, what needed to be done. And um, the at the end of the interview, the interviewer said, well, you know, um, you're actually an Indian from Mauritius Mm -hmm. when you go to India how are you seen and he said well I am seen as an Indian until I open my mouth and then they hear a different accent a different tone and I am immediately categorized a different way Mm -hmm. we're always doing that Mm -hmm. we're always doing that how do you both talk about that and defuse this categorization
1: yeah you know I'm glad you're asking this I've just in our what is it, second week, third week of classes, um, and I'm teaching a class on religion and genocide, and we start with this question of the other. Um, we qua- and we start with the word genocide, what that means. And I talk about fear and the unknown and the ignorance and what examples of, of society today, you know, a woman in a hijab, people are scared of her. What is that fear about, Right? Why can't we approach her? I asked my students to go and interview women in, in hijab on campus and some of them said no we can't.
0: And is that uh, that fear is based on the unknown? The unknown.
1: Yeah, the discomfort, yeah. the unknown. The or unknown makes me you know, eat. friends of mine in Europe that say, you know, it really really disturbs me when they wear the full full veil. She, even, you know, even if the face is uncovered and I have to ask why what are you scared of? so I mean these are these are questions that we have to address in terms of our own emotional control. We like to have control, we like to know and possess what we know anything different we really kill or we really get rid of in terms of society. So we need to remember those lessons, and my students are learning those lessons with me, and they're learning lessons about <coughs> depictions of arabs, Muslims, depictions of jews um racialization of Jews and Arabs, the similarities and the differences, why that's important today, and then also the gray area, the complexity of anti-Semitism within the Arab world, right? So there's a racialization going on again. So we have to be careful with, or we have to be more curious. The wonder. Yeah.
0: Is that racialization, uh, is that anti-Semitism in the Arab world, is that stemming again back to what we talked about, ignorance, unknown, not education, what Anger, politics. I, I imagine you could tell me it's all those things.
1: It is that, but, you know, unfortunately I'm finding there's a deep, deep kind of racism that's coming from um, mythological kind of stories that people tell Muslim kids about Jews, you know, breaking the contract with Muhammad, that we're not supposed to like these people, and they betrayed us, and they're aligned with you know, the Western world. So it's it's got both theological and political ramifications, which is becoming harder for me to dismantle. Well, how do you mean? Well, it's hard when someone says theologically that the Jews broke the contract with Muhammad, which actually they did. But And then the Jews say, well, Muhammad attacked us and killed us, which actually he did. So, I mean, for me, it's okay for me to accept that. Now, people will not accept that because what it does is put puts the sacred in trouble, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the sacred is saying that it is always in trouble and you need to negotiate the world. And that's the message that I think Islam is giving as well as Judaism. But people get very nervous because this is something that they can't negotiate with.
0: Yeah, Christianity too. (coughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. we we could look in the Old Testament, we could look in the New Testament and find ugly examples of racism and tribalism so we're the same but then then we're kind of back to where religion intersects with all this, aren't we? Cuz the sacred pl- plays such a big role in so many people's lives mm-hmm. that you so what's the what what's your next what's your next step when they say look, this is a sacred issue. This is where we this is what did happen. I can't accept it. How do you how do you then start to try you're, you're working on this, I imagine. What are you thinking about breaking that down?
1: I mean, I started talking about A, how the sacred is interpreted, mm-hmm. two, what the sacred means to the person, and three, what is their faith level? Meaning, what is, this, what is the faith level? What is the story of your faith? Is yours, the story of your faith completely clean?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? I mean, hum, human beings completely pure? Um, all monotheistic faiths should know, no, certainly not, right? So I, I walk my students through these stories and have them ask the question of the sacred and what that means. It doesn't mean they can't be Catholic or Jewish or Muslim. I'm not about that. But it's about how do we think of these ideas today without jeopardizing others because we think we're superior in some ways, whether it's religion or race.
0: You know, I heard you joke. And one talk on YouTube uh, that uh, uh, people were asking you what to do. How do we keep the conversations going and open up? You said, and somebody said interfaith dialogues. And you said, oh, interfaith dialogues can be so boring. Don't try to get teenagers to come to interfaith dialogues. But you did say, get them together. Get mm-hmm. them doing things together. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing successes in that? You had yes. an example, right?
1: Yes. Um, okay, My the center that I direct at Manhattan College um, has just Done a one year pilot on a fellowship we created, meaning we, um, the, meaning Manhattan College, as well as uh, self help community services, which helps survivors and the local yeshiva there. And we got three yeshiva students, three Manhattan College students, one of which was a Muslim, and three Holocaust survivors to work together all year and culminate into an interview.
0: So uh, multi generational, too. Multi
1: generational. Multi-socioeconomic, multiracial, everything. Um, and it was fantastic, Steve. We still have you know challenges of time and organization, but now one of the alumni at Manhattan College um, loved the idea so much, has pledged 3,000 a year just for that for me, which is just amazing, because it means I like, can keep going, it can get competitive, people want to do it more. So when you put it in that light, I mean, and what, what do they do? They work together, they put a Seder together, they went to events together, they taped together, they they laughed together, and there was a little resistance in the beginning. I bet. Yeah, yeah. but it was it was something very unique.
0: You chose this path through the scholarship from when you were young and you saw those the books, and then you went to Scarsdale, you saw what was happening. So you've chosen, uh, to, to, to you and to your family members, this sort of, a, you know, the otherness that was, mm-hmm. that was put on you. Does it ever make you weary, or are you, are you energized every day? Because this is a fight. This is a long-term effort.
1: I, I mean, I think teaching about the Holocaust and genocide is very hard, and you have to have, and I hate to say this, because I don't want people to read this wrong, but you have to have levity. And, um, and you have to distance yourself from images, graphics, um, the turbulent times today. Is it where, you, I mean, I get tired physically and mentally because, you know, I'm, I'm basically doing two full-time jobs and trying to come up with more and more scholarship and traveling around the country, doing classes in Venice, Italy. But, you know, I feel this is my passion. And I feel that I've been very fortunate Um, to have so much support from people, Um, but also having some real diamond students and people that I've met along the way that have completely changed their lives, their ways of thinking, for the better. And they're much happier, right? Whether they are doing genocide studies or whatever, it doesn't matter, but they're happier. And they've kind of come out of something, like a dark cloud. And I think that's, I think we're all kind of striving for that. And I mean, my next project is about memory. I'm really, really focused on that. And I want to do something really, really important in terms of Islam and memory. How do we remember early Islam? What do we do with it? What do we go through it? Why are we here? The question of how do we remember being Muslim?
0: We today, looking back on 1,700 years. Are we
1: nostalgic? Are we longing for something? Have we lost something? I mean, the real existential questions are really not being asked, and I really want to ask those next. Thank,
0: Thank you, you for talking to me.
1: Thank you so much, Steve.
0: Dr. Manaz Afridi's upcoming book, Shoah Through Muslim Eyes, looks at Muslims, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. Dr. Afridi spoke February 4th, 2016 at the University of Washington as part of the public lecture series, Equity and Difference, Keeping the Conversation Going. The lecture series continues February 10th, as does this podcast series, with K. Cianina Lomawema, Professor of Justice and Social Inquiry at Arizona State University. Her lecture is titled, More Than Mascots, Less Than Citizens, American Indians Talk, Why Isn't the U.S. Listening? Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm Steve Scher. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington.